0: Well, I noticed The Awakening of Miss Prim is sold out, but my book is not. So uh, this is the story of my life. I recommend other people's books, and that's what people get. Uh, uh, in our final talk today, thank you, bless you for, for being here. Those who endure to the end will be saved, uh, as Jesus said. Um, uh, we're going to look at Romans twelve one through 2. Uh, Romans twelve one and 2. As we talk about the better story that renews the mind i'm going to let this be the The passage we'll look at in a little uh, more in depth here. Let me read this for us Uh, Therefore brothers and sisters in view of the mercies of god I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice Holy and pleasing to god. This is your true worship Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind So that you may discern what is the good pleasing and perfect will of god so that's the text this morning that, uh, in our final session, is going to guide us. Um, a couple of years ago, I picked up a book on the history of Romania. Um, those, of, some of you might be familiar with my my uh, my story, but this is the the country that I called home for five years. Um, I bought a one-way ticket when I was nineteen, and I moved there. I learned the language. I did um, my undergraduate work in Romania. Um, it, it's the country my wife is from. Um, so Romanian is the language that we speak in our home. Uh, it, but a couple of years ago, I picked up a book on Romanian history because I wanted to, I, I was curious, partly because I, I just, I wanted to make sure that the next time I was with a big group of Romanians and they were talking about Romanian history, I wasn't completely in the dark. That was one reason. And uh, the other reason, I was curious to see how this freedom-loving people uh in the uh, mid-1940s were able to come under communist rule and be subjected to this totalitarian regime for, that lasted more than 40 years. Uh, I wanted to know, how did that happen? How did that happen? And because that that, that regime, uh, uh, Ceausescu the dictator, his Romania, was so influential in the life of my in-laws and family members now and and, and my wife, I wanted to know you know, what what happened there. And what I discovered... Uh, surprised me one of the primary ways that communist ideology spread across the country across the country was through the history books uh, when the communists took over of course first they took over by force and they were already ostracizing people and marginalizing people who would not who who didn 't go along with them and so they went after the artists and the poets interestingly enough uh, our Art tends to be one way in which certain ideologies can really can flourish and take hold because they capture the imagination of people. Uh, but immediately after the communists had power, they went and they recommissioned all the textbooks of Romania to be new, and they recast the story of Romania so that the socialist ideals uh, that had now come to power, they were the culmination of all of Romania's hopes and dreams. That's how they were presented. Right? So... Um, Uh, the the revolutionaries had this understanding that if we change the the story of Romania's past, downplay the Latin elements, really upplay the Slavic and Russian elements, we're we're going to um, cast a vision for Romania's future this way. If we do that, we can reshape Romanian life in the present. That's what they thought. Um, If you can rewrite the story, you can rewire the people. And that's what they did. So they commissioned these history books. In fact, I've seen a few of them. My my father-in-law has Uh, um, had a couple of these uh, Romanian textbooks that now they're looked at as tainted because they basically are seen as something of propaganda for the communist regime because of the way history was retold to to tell this certain kind of story. Uh, So my father-in-law grew up in the 1950s and 60s. He believed what he read in those history books. He believed the myth of societal evolution that was uh, um, propounded by the communists. He was a proud Communist Party member in the 1970s. But... He was um, sent to a Baptist revival meeting to uh, spy on the participants and to give a report of who was in attendance, who was making decisions. And when he was there, he heard the gospel, he came under conviction for his sins, and later he told me, you know, it was in that revival meeting that I realized the communist regime was a sham. Jesus is the true king of the world. So he went in as a spy and he came out saved. And then he took my my mother in law a few nights later, and she was she didn't want to hear about it. She was like, "You're crazy," you know. And then is and then she became a Christian uh, the same week. And then uh, of course he had family members who thought that they were going to be resigning, uh, and he he would have to resign from the Communist Party. In fact, he didn't have to resign; they just kicked him out, made it a little bit easier. But um, I, I mean, all of these like he knew there were going to be all of these social costs, and it's just fascinating to see. Uh, how Romanian believers during that time were were faithful, and it reminds me something of you know when I think of the Romanian testimonies that I heard of, of faithfulness during that, that time of communism, it reminds me of, of the bravery of some German pastors uh, during the rise of the Third Reich of fascism in, in Germany. You had a lot of church leaders were falling all over themselves to affirm hitler 's interpretation of germany 's past and hitler 's vision for germany 's future. But then you had a number of brave German pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who were willing to proclaim the true gospel of the kingdom of God even if it would cost them something. And whenever I hear those stories of people who were able to be faithful in difficult times like that, who they stood firm in persecution, whether it was uh, uh, communism or they resisted the, the Nazis, um, I ask myself what enabled them to remain true to their faith? And I think one of the answers to that question is they knew what time it was. They knew what time it was. They knew they lived in a different story. They weren't fooled by the communists tinkering with the history books or the Nazis who were suppressing dissent. They They, they were living in this world where there were all these false visions on display and being really pounded down on everyone else. And they were so clear on the biblical vision for the future that they saw the sham for what it was. They were just clear-eyed. Everything else was a fog, but they knew we, we're living from a different story. We know what time it is. We live in a different time in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second, and it doesn't matter what everyone else says is the story of our world. We know what the true story is. So when I think about friends and family members in Romania and how they saw through that myth of their society, the myth that everyone else seemed to believe, or at least on the surface pretended that they believed, uh, I can't help but wonder, would would we be able to do the same thing? I mean, that's a question that haunts me from time to time. Would I be faithful in that situation? You know, in our case, there's not one overarching myth or ideology that's being foisted upon us by a tyrannical government. <laughs> I mean, at least not yet. Um... There's nothing like, there's not one ideology that's that's sort of uh, uh, foisted upon us, as was the case in Romania, but we are bombarded by messages all the time, and all kinds of, it's not one ideology, it's all types of ideologies are swirling around us, and so normal life in 21st century America can feel overwhelming at times because of how many ideas and messages are out there, how many come, come in. There's a constant stream of messages coming to us through our phones, our TVs, the internet, and not to mention the messages that we that we take for granted that we we receive we don't even notice them you know the assumptions beliefs practices things that we don't even think to even ask about i mentioned one last night with you know the idea that uh uh being true to yourself being the purpose of life uh, the difference between a western way of seeing this and an eastern way of seeing it. there are so many things like that and then there are all these philosophies that swirl around us all the time, and whether we're familiar with them or not, by the name of what they go by, they are there. All these isms, right? Socialism, capitalism, postmodernism, consumerism, relativism, pluralism, all these different isms uh, representing this different outlook on humanity, and there's all these different opinions about the way society should function and how people should behave. Listen, at the beginning, though, each of these began with an idea. They began with an idea. Now, some Christians, I've met a few, they sort of shrug off any talk about philosophies and isms. Um, They would look at the book by Charles Taylor up there that I mentioned and be like, you know, what? I don't need to worry about what other people think about the world. I just need to read my Bible and do what it says. That line of thinking, that I I don't need to care about philosophies, I just need to read my Bible, that sounds very humble, and it sounds very restrained. That is far from the mentality of a missionary, though. Uh, If we are to be biblical Christians, we must read the Bible in order to read our culture because we are sent to this world. And if the isms that we want to shrug off and say aren't important, if they really impact people in our in our world, then we should be able to evaluate them in light of God's unchanging revelation. So, yes, I want to say, yes, read your Bible first. You read your Bible though with a purpose, so that you can then read, know how to read the world news, the second. So you read the Bible first to be able to read the news, the second, and be able to actually have a grid, a framework of interpretation to actually understand this. And we also read read the Bible. Uh, not just so we can know how to be a good Christian ourselves, but so we can know how to engage people with the gospel. So we've got to have our minds formed by the scriptures. And at the same time, if you're going to be a good missionary, you need to know something of the neighbors that we're called to reach, right? What what are the isms that are actually impacting people? Uh, What are the big questions that people are asking? What are the big debates in our world? These are important for us to know. Now, Romanian believers back in the the communist period, they knew that their government was pushing an ideology. But what about us? What about now? What if we are living according to myths in our culture without ever even questioning them? That's the question we should ask. What, What if we are falling for false stories, not because they're in our history books, but because they're in our everyday habits? When we feel uncertain, when we feel confused about our culture because things are changing so rapidly, you know, I meet a lot of Christians who feel overwhelmed by the rapid shifts of culture, and you know what they lack? Confidence. They lack confidence in the power of the gospel, in the power of the church, in the power to actually have a better story. And so that is why a lot of us wonder, are we really up to being faithful in our time? There are some ways, and, and I, I don't want this to, to be taken the wrong way. In some ways, it may be easier to be a Christian and to be a, 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 there, there to be a stark contrast between the church and the world in a place like a totalitarian Romania than in a country where you really don't know the false ideologies you're supposed to be opposing. And at least, not easier from a persecution standpoint, but perhaps simpler because the differences are so immediately stark. So this last talk here, uh, we're not going to resolve all of the the issues that we could possibly talk about here, um, all the different spheres of life that we could talk about. What I want this last talk to do is to set us on the journey of growing in this area, of being better missionaries, of having our minds renewed, You know, we sometimes say um, Christians must be different from the world. And you you hear that statement in sermons or you read it in books and you say yes. And a lot of times people think about behavior. We should act differently than the world around us. Our actions should set us apart. But there's another application of that statement. Christians must be different from the world in the way we think. Our thinking should also set us apart. Yes, our actions would make us stand out from the world, but at an even deeper level, our thought processes should be different as well. Um, so look again at Romans 12, 1 and 2, in case you're wondering where I would bring, get this from from Scripture. Paul says, In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So, if you're familiar with the structure of Romans, you know that Romans 12 is where Paul sort of launches into specific instructions about how to live. In in other words, when he says, therefore, at the beginning of Romans 12, he's saying, in light of all that has gone before, in light of God's promises, in light of God's salvation that he has provided through his Son, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now you may be thinking, wait, Trevin, bodies? I thought we were talking about minds here, right? About ideas, about minds. I say yes. Notice how spiritual transformation includes both of those things. You see, look at verse 1 and then hold it up next to verse 2. They're both there together. In verse 1, Paul says, offer your body. So just right there, anyone who tells you that God really isn't concerned what we do with our bodies when it comes to health, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes Romans chapter twelve verse one, our bodies are to be offered as a living sacrifice. We are we are uh, um, bodily creatures. We're not Gnostics that simply believe in the mind. We are embodied people. So you've got spiritual transformation there in verse one, talking about bodies. Then look at verse two. What does it say in verse two? Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Right. So you have verse two. You've got both. So you've got in. Two verses, mind and matter, physical and immaterial, thinking and behavior. Paul doesn't just say, think rightly, and then everything will be fine. And he doesn't just say, behave rightly, and everything will be fine. No, he knows the gospel transforms both thoughts and actions. They go hand in hand. Thoughts influence actions, and actions and habits also influence our thoughts. So if we are to keep from being conformed to this age, we've got to understand that connection. Paul connected them, and so we should as well. One of the interesting things about Scripture, when you read the Bible, some of you may go through a, um, like, read the Bible in a year plan, um, where you're, you're going through several chapters a day as you're working your way through the Bible. You know what's wonderful about going through Scripture, talking about the renewing of your mind? The Bible doesn't just show you what a Christian perspective looks like. It also shows you what wrong ideas look like and how they would lead you astray. The Bible points out bad ideas not just presenting good ideas. Let me give you some examples. You read the book of Job? Um, there's a false idea that Job brings to our attention, a false idea that brings false comfort. Job, you know the story, righteous man, goes to this severe trial. Um, along the way, he is comforted, should we say, by his friends. Um All of his friends accused Job of having sinned. He must have done something wrong. So Job's friends, you know, the best thing that Job's friends did was that several-day period where they basically just sat with Job and they didn't say a word. Their silence and support was better than anything else they did. The rest of the book goes downhill from there for his friends and for Job. Okay, Um, Job's friends, though, they had a worldview. They had an ism that said basically... Everything happens because of cause and effect. Do bad things, and bad things will happen to you. Do good things, and good things will happen to you. That, that, that's the, that's the, the lens through which they interpreted Job's suffering. Now, were they right? No. They were wrong. I love the end when God speaks so harshly to Job's friends, and Job actually intercedes for them. I think that that's, it's it's so beautiful at the end of Job. God doesn't give Job all of the answers, but God gives Job himself. And somehow that's enough at the end. But I, the, the the book of Job, though, uh, challenges all the way through. If you read the book of Job rightly, not the way I did when I was 19 and I preached my first sermon from Job. I preached from one of the friend's sermons as if it the, the point of it was that this is what God was saying that we should be. So, um, just a quick, what we call hermeneutics lesson. Um, if you're ever going to teach on the book of Job, do not be careful that you're not just taking something out of context in that book and then putting it out because then you're actually becoming Job's friend in the pulpit. Um, that was me, one of my first sermons. I need to go find that sermon and put it online as like an example. Do not do this, right? Um. but what what's that book doing? It is the book overall is challenging a false perspective on suffering on humanity and is saying, look, the true story of Job and the true story of suffering in our world is you have an all-powerful, all-wise God who permits things to happen that are beyond our understanding. Job doesn't give you all the answers. Job shuts your mouth. That's what the book does. So, but notice that it does so by presenting the false worldview, consider the book of Ecclesiastes in Old Testament. Another one you got to be careful about. Uh, a lot of the book expresses the worldview of life under the sun, right? You've seen that in the book of Ecclesiastes, a life without meaning and purpose in the face of death. Now, the author of Ecclesiastes does end with uh, an affirmation of a biblical worldview, but a lot of the poetry leading up to the end is written with the perspective that basically it doesn't matter how much you accumulate uh no matter how much wealth and power you have everything is meaningless apart from the existence of god right that's what you see all throughout and so in reflecting on what life is like under the sun as if there is no transcendent reality um you've got this book that helps us understand the mindset and worldview of someone who lives as if this life is all there is ecclesiastes is a very relevant book for our day in a secular society very much so. But notice that the book is challenging because it's actually presenting this worldview and then critiquing it from the the light of the gospel. It's there to be together. Or another example. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, we call that the resurrection chapter. It's a really long chapter. The Apostle Paul is outlining what it means for us to be raised from the dead, what it means to be raised with Christ, what Jesus' resurrection means. And he says, if the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, what Paul is saying is, hey, eat and drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the philosophy of hedonism. That's the 84% uh, of Americans that we talked about last night. What Paul is saying is, look, if the resurrection isn't true, that sounds good. But he's saying that's, that's the, that's the kind of philosophy you would go for next. He's saying this pursuit of pleasure, that's acceptable unless the claims of Christianity are true. And so he's saying if Christ has been raised, then there must be something more than immediate pleasure and comfort. So Paul is contrasting a Christian worldview with a hedonistic philosophy. And the Bible's doing this consistently throughout. It'll bring up a different ism and then it will show the biblical interpretation. The Bible consistently presents a Christian view of the world and along the way the authors are interacting with and they're contradicting unbiblical worldviews. And so I say all that to say, if the Bible does this, we should be able to do this. That's what it means to be biblically formed. So that we won't, why does the Bible do this? Why did God inspire that kind of work to be in the Bible? Because God knew that this would help people from being conformed so they wouldn't be conformed to the ways of the world. They would be able to stand out. And that's the same thing for us. There's also a missionary reason why we do this. Worldviews matter because people matter. When you try to understand someone that you disagree with, that's one way that you're loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor includes listening. Uh, It doesn't mean you accept every point of view as valid or as helpful or right. It doesn't mean you paper over differences. You don't conform, but you do listen and you learn like missionaries who are trying to understand the people that God has called you to reach. I once heard that Francis Schaeffer, the apologist, well-known apologist, once said, someone said, if you had an hour to present the gospel to someone, what would you say? He said, I think I would listen for 50 minutes, and then the last 10 minutes I would talk. In other words, for me to know how to best present the gospel in that setting, I would want to I'd want to, to hear about this particular individual, what they believe, how they live, what their big questions are, and then I would want to bring the gospel to bear on that particular individual in a particular way. That's seeking to be a missionary, listening carefully. And then trusting the spirit to help you know how best to respond, how best to engage. There's no easy answer or formula that works for every person. It's bringing the gospel to bear uh, um, on on uh, uh, different people. I, uh, so that's what we are to to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We we live in light of the mercies of God. We understand our role as in the world as Christ's ambata- ambassadors, and we answer His call. We're going to bear witness to Jesus and to His work. So I want us to look again. Let's let's. Drill down deep again at Paul's instruction. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, real quick, I just want to show you where that instruction falls in the context of the book of Romans. Back in Romans 1, Paul lays out this dire situation of humanity before a holy God. You familiar with Romans 1? The wrath of God is revealed against all of humanity. Okay, and what did Paul say there? He says, for though they knew God... They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. That is the natural state of humanity apart from Jesus. Okay. Uh, Romans 1 shows us what life is like when you exchange the truth of God for a lie. Our minds are darkened. We engage in sinful behavior, and you have that list of sinful attitudes and actions. Greed, envy, murder, sexual immorality, all of that happening, okay? That's Romans 1. Your thinking is affected. You see that in Romans 1? Okay, now in Romans 12, after everything Paul has talked about with Jesus, the situation is reversed. Because of Christ's work, our minds are no longer darkened. They're being renewed. We're no longer senseless living in the dark. We are redeemed people living in the light because Jesus has been raised from the dead. We live in the light of God regenerating our hearts. So through the spirit now, God is at work changing us, conforming us, not to the world, but to the image of his son. So by the mercies of God, we've received this new identity. So look at how Romans 12 connects back to Romans 1. Romans 1, you see what natural humanity has. Romans 12, you see what redeemed humanity is like. And this is why thinking as a Christian is one of the key parts of what it means for us to follow Jesus. If we've been been called children of God, we should uh, our new identity should affect the way we think, the way we act. Now, as a parent, um, you know I'm proud of my kids when I see them growing, when I see them maturing. Uh, I, I I love um, sometimes they they quarrel and fight. My oldest is 12. Uh, we have a uh, 12-year-old son, an 8-year-old girl, and a 3-year-old boy. And I I love to see um, on occasion those beautiful flashes of love between them because sometimes they're rare. <laughs> I love seeing that when when um, you know maybe we're we're doing something and it, it, this happened uh, when when they were smaller when my our, our there's four years in between the the first two, um, but. Our, our oldest would sometimes want to just if if things got quiet in the house and he didn't know where where my daughter was he he he'd he'd go check on her he'd leave his own toys and he'd be like I just want to make sure she's okay you know and I love I love seeing that now when he does that it's more likely to pick on her but uh, and our daughter does the same thing for our three year old you know that she she kind of becomes big sister little mama in the house and wants to she's five years older and so she's kind of she wants to just make sure. He's okay, so she's the one running after him. But I, I love seeing that, that growth and maturity because I'm, I'm seeing this, I, and I'm, as a father, it's, it's, it's pleasing to me when I see this. You know, God, in, in a similar way, he's pleased when he sees us thinking and acting like his children. That doesn't mean that we don't often falter and stumble and fall. It doesn't mean that we always are thinking clearly. Sanctification is a process. It is not complete yet. But God loves it when he sees his children uh, uh, loving him with their minds. He loves to see us embrace the identity that he's given us as his his children. I I love what the psalmist wrote, Psalm 119, 130. The revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. I I love that, and I think we need to keep that in mind because when I talk about thinking, I'm not simply talking about something that we do on our own. Uh, If we have understanding, it's not because we've suddenly become so mature, but because God has revealed himself to us. God's revelation. You're not going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind apart from God's Spirit working through God's Word. So God's Spirit illuminates the meaning of the Bible, and then we find our place in this great story of redemption. So don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now look at verse 2. What's the whole point of this? The second part of verse 2. So that you may discern discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I know some of you in here, your personality types are the the kind that you wish that the Bible just gave you a simple, quick, and easy guide that lays out every step of obedience. There are some people, you just want it to be clear, write down the, the do this and don't do this, just all the way down. Now look, the Bible does have a lot of do's and don'ts, But God did not choose to lay out specific commands for us in every situation. He didn't. The Bible does not give you specific commands in every possible situation that you might find yourself in. What the Bible does give you, it's not an instruction manual as much as it is a grand narrative that focuses our attention on Jesus and the gospel. And then through that, you glean these principles for understanding how you live according to your new identity in Christ. So once you understand your general role in the overarching plan and purposes of God in his providence, then what are you supposed to do? You are supposed to exercise biblical wisdom in everyday decisions. Wisdom, discernment. Listen, God left you with something greater than a simple list of commands. He gave you a renewed mind that through the power of his spirit is going to be able to discern what actions we should take. He is seeking to transform us so that we can figure out, that we can determine, that we can discern God's will in a particular situation where there may not be any explicit instructions. So I know some of you in here, you're confused about the changes in our society and our culture and many of the things that you, you're like, I don't know how to be faithful in this moment. This is why we need a renewed mind. Because God hasn't laid out particular instructions, specific instructions about every possible situation. This is one of the goals of developing a Christian worldview. God, uh, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you will discern what the will of God is and how you are to live. You've got an example of this. Sometimes uh, people will bring this up. um, 1 Chronicles 12. There's a long list there of King David's supporters and the author is listing the soldiers and he writes of one of the tribes. Some of you may have heard this before. He says, from the Issacharites who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Uh, Now, in the context of this passage, the uh, the tribe understood that David should be made king over all of israel and because they really they knew this already they understood what they should do because they understood the times and who the rightful king was Uh, i love the connection though do you see that they understood the times and then they knew what israel should do they were able to discern the way forward because they knew where they were they knew who was the king in a similar way as christians we should understand the times in order to know what to do we believe jesus is the rightful king all over the world that he is the one who influences our actions. And so a Christian worldview is developed in this light of who God is and what he has done to reconcile the world to himself. Uh, <clears throat> there's a good a good concept uh, on this uh, by John Stott, global evangelical leader. Some of you may have read some books by, by John Stott. Um, he calls this double listening. I love this mindset. Double listening, and this is what he means. He says... Believers should keep one ear carefully listening to Scripture and Christian tradition and the other ear listening to the surrounding culture. Why? So that you know how to bring these truths to bear over here. you, you got to double listening, listening to both. Uh, that is vitally important if we're going to be holy in this age. So discernment, discerning the way forward. Um, that double listening I- implies this idea of I need to listen to Scripture the the church, uh, people around me who I know want to glorify God, that's going to help me discern the way forward over here in this cultural context where I have to make decisions. But it's going to help me discern the way forward. And I, I love this uh, uh, definition of discernment. This is one of my favorite definitions. It's a little lengthy, but I'm going to read it to you from Simon Chan. Um, he says, Discernment is knowing God's will in particular situations. And knowing God's will is not just a matter of grasping a piece of information, It has to do with our whole attitude toward God and ourselves, with an ongoing relationship with God and loving Him. Discernment, therefore, is more than just the scientific application of principles to particular situations. It requires practical wisdom that no amount of formal study can impart that is a kind of spiritual sensitivity that comes with long experience. I love that definition because I think it gets to the heart of what we're talking about here. We need wisdom. Wisdom. And, you know, some of you, you may think, where am I going to get wisdom? Listen, wisdom draws upon the resources from the past, looks to the promise of the future, and relies on the Holy Spirit to guide us in the present. That's what wisdom does. We we don't just ask, you remember the bracelets that went around, what would Jesus do? Was I the only one who had one of those bracelets back in the last night? Uh, okay, I'll That comes from a famous book by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. Uh, That's a great question to ask, what would Jesus do? But we actually need to ask a deeper question even than that. The question isn't what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus have me to do in this state of affairs? What time is it? What is Jesus wanting me to do? What is he calling me to do in this time? That's what engaging our culture and community looks like. Now, a lot of times, uh, so far we've been talking about individual minds, and I just, this is one of the places where our Western blinders can get put on, okay? We don't have a plural form for you in English. You've got yous? Okay. In, in the Southern, we have y'all, okay? So, you know, I mean, the, the, uh, um, someone ought to do a Southern version of the Bible. And make all of the plural yous be y'all so that we would know that, I mean, this is, it's interesting, like my wife sees this uh, in Romanian because the Romanian translation has the plural form for you. So when she's seeing a lot of these instructions in the Bible, it's immediately, she knows it's talking to the whole church. Paul is talking to the whole church. So he's not just talking about you on your own with a book, renewing your mind individually. He's talking about the church as a community not conforming to the world, but being transformed together by the renewing of your mind as a corporate body of believers as well. And the reason that's important is because I don't want you to have the image of an individual who's engaging culture. No, the the gospel doesn't just engage culture. The gospel creates a culture by birthing a church. The church creates a culture of its own. We, we've got to make sure that we're connected in a local congregation because this is the place these are the people in who the, the the grace of god is supposed to be on full display the church is to be this oasis in a graceless world this place where we when we sing when we hear scripture where we are in awe of the holiness of god where we are countercultural because we confess that jesus christ is the king and he's in charge that's what the church is supposed to, to be. So the church doesn't just engage culture, the church is a culture of its own. And and one of the beautiful things about churches that meet together, and I love the fact that you've got more than one church here this weekend, but, but uh, churches birth their own culture, and then you actually benefit from different churches and different cultures from all around the world. It's like a boomerang effect. Right, that you, you learn from other Christians in other parts of the world. It's very important for us to, to have our ears open to brothers and sisters in Christ who may come from different contexts and may see things that we don't. They may see our blind spots. We may see some of their blind spots. That's why we need Christians from all over uh, to be able to help us as we, we we build that culture. So here's what I want to leave us with uh, um, as we, we talk about resisting false stories that are swirling around in our world today, not being conformed to our world, um I, I I think when if we're going to see through the myths that are on display in our society, we've got to look for three things in in what people uh what what we hear, what we see, what we receive. Um I, I they all start with L because deep down I'm a Southern Baptist and alliteration is in my blood. Okay. Uh longing, lie, and light. Okay? The longing, the lie, and the light. Let me explain what I mean first by the longing. There is usually something good and right in the stories that our society tells. When someone believes a myth about the world, it's usually because deep down they want something in that story to be true. People want that to be true. So, one of the questions you should ask when you see someone living not according to the gospel, but according to something they want to be true of the world, we should ask the question okay. There's a reason why their heart wants that to be true. What is that? Look for the longing. The question is why? Now, we know that they, they may really be longing for God, but they're looking in the wrong place for that longing to be fulfilled, right? They, they believe this lie, this myth, because they're trying to satisfy something deep in their soul. But it's important for us, if you're truly listening, to be able to spot the longing there the myth they be, they believe may be bad but the longing may actually be good i like how um, john perkins the civil rights activist says the job of an of an evangelist is to connect god's good news with people's deep yearnings so we find common ground when with people when you can look past the myths to the person that's behind believing that myth, and say, why do they want that to be true? Is the longing that's behind them believing this thing that I believe to be untrue? Is the longing there actually a longing for God that's been misdirected, led them into rebellion, to sin, or whatever it might be? So that's what you first look for is the longing. But the second thing is you also look for the lie. It's not enough just to look for the deeper longing. You also have to challenge what's bad. Uh, The gospel doesn't just affirm the deepest the deepest instincts and longings of humanity, it also challenges those longings, reshapes those longings, and in doing so, it exposes the lie. If you don't ever expose the lies at the heart of society, then we are just implying that Christianity, eh, it's just one option among many other options, just one way of finding fulfillment. No, if we believe Christianity is true, then that message is going to expose what is false, false beliefs, false practices, So, you have the longing, you also have the lie, and then you have the light. I like to say the the light of the gospel. You know, we speak of the gospel as light because the biblical writers refer to Jesus Christ as light. The biblical writers refer to God's word as light. Um, We need light. We want light. We were not made to live in darkness. You know, that's the reason why uh, torturers will use, will make use of the dark. It's why people in winter sometimes suffer from these seasonal affective disorders, right? Because light, we were made for light. We long for light, but notice also, light also exposes, and sometimes it blinds our eyes. Uh, Christians who shine the light of the gospel on the myths of the world do not simply say, this is right and this is wrong. What we say is, no, this is better. This is better. The gospel tells a better story. Yes, the gospel exposes the lies that we believe and promote in society, but but once our eyes adju- adjust to its brightness we discover how the gospel also answers those deeper longings that we that 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 uh, uh surprise us that in ways that we wouldn't have expected so evangelism is not just convincing people that the gospel is true but also that the gospel is better that it tells a better story so you have longings and you have lies in light of the gospel let me just say christians tend to fall into one of two extremes here this is what we'll have to be careful about. I call them lie detector Christians and complementary Christians. Okay, uh, lie detector Christians. These are the ones who expose. Uh, they they most of their energy is on exposing lies. I mean, they can see, they can spot the falsehoods uh, right away in society's myths, but they often miss the longing that's behind the myth. Okay, so a lie detector Christian. Some of you in here, this is the the way you tend to lean. You can see the lies. And if you're not careful, if you can only spot lies and don't really get to the heart of the longings behind why people sin or why people are living a certain way, you will wind up with your arms crossed in a posture of constant condemnation. Now, sometimes people will call these Christians like discernment people. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like calling these folks, discernment people, because discernment is a gift of the Holy Spirit, first of all, and as such, it's something beautiful, and it should be cultivated. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. And I would also say, lie detector Christians don't suffer from too much discernment. It's that they don't have enough. They discern only the lies, but they don't discern the longings. So the reason why someone would fall for that lie in the first place, right? So on one hand, you've got lie detector Christians. On the other hand, a lot of Christians, I would say, I would call them complimentary Christians. They focus so much on the deeper longings behind society's myths that they never expose what is false. Uh, I call them complimentary because they're always commending people and they never bring that word of challenge. The gospel loses its edge. So if you've got lie detector Christians err on the side of just exposing lies, complimentary Christians, eventually they just make Christianity sound just like the world, like the gospel is just affirming the longings that people already have. They just baptize those affirmations in Christian Christian lingo. Listen, neither of those approaches is going to lead us to biblical faithfulness in our time. We've got to be savvy enough to see how the gospel answers deeper longings and rejects humanity's lies. And the reason we do this is because we want to live according to this new identity That we have in Jesus Christ. So we demolish strongholds, false ideas. We cast down the idols that we make of ourselves. And what do we do in repentance and faith? We want to see the world through biblical eyes. We want to see people the way Jesus sees people. We are citizens of Jesus's kingdom. We are those who have been reborn by His Spirit. We are inching ever so slowly to maturity. We are driven by our hope and final resurrection. That's who we are. God has placed us here and now, and so. We want to think as Christians, we want to have the heart of Christ, we want to have the mindset, the attitude of Christ, as Philippians 2 says, and then we want to summon other people to believe in Jesus Christ, our King. So I hope that this this uh, final session that we've had today will, will at least inspire you, set you on the journey to ask how you can be put yourself in the right posture for God to continue his transforming, renewing work on your mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's instruction to us this morning to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we do stand out from the world. Father, help us to not conform to the world. Help us to be transformed so that we know the way forward. Father, I'm sure there are people in, here this morning that facing all kinds of trials and temptations and struggles and not sure what the way forward is. I pray, Father, that you would help them the renewing of their own minds, the guidance of the, the Spirit, the wisdom of the church, for them to be able to discern the path forward, to discern the next step, to discern the best way to engage people that they love, that they care for, that need you. Help us, Father, to be good missionaries in the context that you've placed us in. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.